Locked On NBA, the biggest stories, the local experts. Every Monday, we dig into the biggest stories in the NBA with the Locked On Podcast Network hosts. Today, we will stop in the Bay Area to speak with Aliko Carter, previewing the Warriors ahead of their Game 7 matchup. We'll also then go to Houston to speak with Locked On Rockets host Ben DeBose to get a Rockets perspective on the massive Game 7 looming Monday night. And then lastly, we'll go to Cleveland to speak with Chris Manning of Locked On Cavs after the Cavaliers and LeBron James overtook the Celtics in Game 7 for a massive, massive victory and now await their Western Conference opponent in the NBA Finals. It's all coming up. The biggest stories with the local experts on Locked On NBA. You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hi guys, and welcome to another edition of the Locked On NBA podcast. This is the Monday show, and I am your Monday host, Josh Lloyd. You can find me on Twitter at RedRock underscore Beeble. I am also the host of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast, and I am the lead analyst at BasketballMonster.com. We are down to the pointy end of the NBA season. We're going to be talking conference finals, um, the end of the Eastern Conference, the last game in the Western Conference. There's lots for us to talk about. It's all very exciting, so let's get to it. Let's now talk to Ben DeBose of Locked On Rockets, one half of an epic game seven that is shaping up uh, today, tomorrow, depending on when you listen to this podcast. Ben, we are, we are recording this just minutes after hearing the uh, Mike D'Antoni press conference or after you hearing the Mike D'Antoni uh, conference. What's the latest on the Chris Paul injury, which of course is probably the biggest storyline heading into game seven? The latest is that he has not been ruled out, and that's a much better scenario than the day before Game 6. Game 6, Saturday night, we heard Friday morning that he was ruled out, and we heard from D'Antoni at Game 6 that there was just no way he could have played. They have not done that for Game 7, which tells you that they're trying. At this point, though, it's all speculation. They're officially listing him as questionable. They haven't really had him test it yet, so basically what they're doing now they're giving him round-the-clock treatment on that hamstring. It sounds like about three days of that, round-the-clock treatment, and just time to rest it. And then at some point during the day tomorrow, uh, he'll actually test it, be it jogging, running, whatever they want to do. And then tomorrow afternoon, they'll make a decision just before the game as to whether he's able to go. Now, D'Antoni, from what I understand, and you were, you were on this conference call, I'm just gathering this from from quotes that he said questionable then later on he mentioned the word doubtful so we're probably questionable is officially listed as being a 50 50 chance of playing or not playing it feels like it's sliding more towards the 40 60 with some of the words that dan tony was saying especially given the nature of the injury And, and as you mentioned him being ruled out as quickly as he was in advance of game six it wasn't the same situation as that hamstring injury that paul suffered in the uh series against san antonio as a member of the clippers a few seasons back where he was was able to play through it. So did you get that impression that it's it's more likely than not that he doesn't play? For the first time, I'm willing to say that. I thought when it happened that he would be back this series. I was always skeptical of Game 6. I was optimistic on Game 7, but 
I threw out the caveat, and it's a big one, that unless you've seen the MRI, then we're all just guessing because there's so much variance between a grade one, a grade two. Certainly, I don't think it's a grade three or he wouldn't even be walking upright the way he is. But even within a grade one and a grade two, there's so much variance. And, of course, there's a lot of differences from person to person in terms of exactly what the healing time is. But from what the Rockets been very tight lipped, but the couple of national reporters that have spoken on it, which are Adrian Wojnarowski and uh, Mark Spears of ESPN, those two have not been very optimistic. So between that and D'Antoni referencing, I don't think he meant to say doubtful. He said uh, probably doubtful or whatever they listed it as questionable. I don't think that he was necessarily saying that he had intel. I think for all of them, he said after to see if there's any way he can play whatsoever. I think if it's even remotely possible, they're going to err on the side of him playing given the obvious stakes here. And I think the reality that if they can win this game tomorrow, even if Chris Paul is compromised for part or all of the NBA Finals, the Rockets would still be prohibitive favorites. So I think they're looking for any avenue possible that he can play. But ultimately, I do think, just based on what little we've heard to this point, that it might be more severe than I initially thought it was. But ultimately, it's hard to get a real read either way until he goes through that practice or whatever physical test he does during the day tomorrow. And of course, based on that, they'll make the final determination. As is always the case in the NBA, it's not necessarily about the player who replaces the injured player. It's about the player who replaces the replacement. So Eric Gordon stepped into the Chris Paul role and he was fantastic in, in game six. Yep. He had his 19 points. But then it's what happens with the rest of the rotation. We saw Luke Marmute yep. come back in. We saw Joe Johnson play minutes. Uh, Ryan Anderson and Aaron Jackson also got some playing time, although there's garbage time portions there. But you know, we have no no concerns about what Eric Gordon's going to do in that role, but the Rockets are going to need more out of guys like Marmute. We saw an increase in minutes from Gerald Green, and in, against this Warriors team, that's where the real concern is. You know, how, how do we see, you know, what can Luke do? Can he get anything going offensively? Because since that second shoulder issue that he had against Utah, he hasn't been able to do a single thing offensively. Yeah, that's a fair question, and that's exactly what I said in my postgame recap last night. It's not so much do the Rockets have enough star power in Chris Paul's absence? It's actually the trickle-down effects to the end of that rotation because last night you had to play Gerald Green and Luke Bamute a combined 41 minutes, and it might have even been more than that if not for the last six to eight minutes of the game pretty much being garbage time. So when you have to go from, you know, normally going into this series, before the Chris Paul injury, you had maybe 15 minutes a game from Gerald, and now that 15 minutes per game is escalating to nearly 40, 45. And the, the adage is true, generally, that role players are better at home, so that's one thing I think you're hoping for. Uh, but I think it's less likely that Luke, at this point, because whatever is going on with him, combination of the matchup, and I think just mentally he's not all the way there after dislocating that shoulder twice. I think the bigger sense of hope for the Rockets, if Paul isn't able to go, is that maybe Gerald Green doesn't have the lapses that he had in Game 6. Because he actually did make uh, three three-pointers, I believe. It was just he had a couple of just baffling turnovers on offense. Defensively, he missed some assignments. If Green is more dialed in, then to me, that's the biggest sense of optimism. But you're right. When you lose Chris Paul, it's not that Eric Gordon wasn't ready. It's the trickle-down effects. And the flip side of this, we should mention that if Chris Paul is able to go, even if he's limited, even if he can buy you just 20 to 25 minutes... That's a huge deal because I've seen people asking a lot on Twitter, even if he plays, what percentage is he going to be at? 
even if Chris Paul is just able to give you, say, 20, 25 minutes as a shooter, a facilitator, a decoy, we know the Rockets had 21 turnovers in Game 6, and I think a lot of that had to do with Chris Paul's absence, some questionable officiating in there as well, but as far as what they can control, I think Chris Paul's absence was the biggest role in that. And so even if he's not able to be the Chris Paul that he was in Game 4 or Game 5, if they could get him out there even for just 20 minutes of stability relative to what you're getting from that green and Bob Mute tier, then ultimately that would be a huge difference. And that's why the Rockets, as they've said, including Mike D'Antoni this afternoon, that they're going to try everything possible to see if it's at all realistic to get Chris Paul out there for any length of time, because certainly any little bit helps with the rotation the way it is right now. I don't think there's any chance that if Chris Paul plays, he's not playing 39, he's not playing 40 minutes. Like He's just not going to be able to do that. Like I think the best case scenario you could look for is maybe 30, 31 minutes, and even that might be pushing. But I agree, if he can get out there for 20, 25 minutes and take some of those minutes away from Green. Like Daryl Green hit those three threes, but he didn't get a single rebound or a single assist or didn't contribute a steal and had three turnovers. And that overall, despite you know, shooting well, there's massive negatives in there because he's just not contributing in all those other areas that Paul does. He's not setting up you know, teammates the way that Chris does. And you know, in large part, you can talk about the turnovers being a large portion due to Paul's absence. The fact that the team shot only 40%. Is also due to the fact that you don't have the facilitation that Paul provides, the the gravity that he draws, the ability to to get guys open and get better looks. All that is a big factor. But of course, it all swings back now to Houston for Game Seven, as you mentioned. Role players are better uh, at home. The Rockets have played well. Uh, yeah, they played well there in, in Game Five. Clearly, there are a lot of injury concerns hanging over this series and how the results going to go. We've got Chris Paul on one side. We've got Andre Iguodala and now Kevon Looney, both tagged with the questionable tag in Golden State. So lots of uh, lots of intrigue in what is shaping up, Ben, to be the biggest game of the entire NBA season. I'm sure you're going to be covering that in great detail on Locked on Rockets. Uh, I wish you all the best and all the Rocket supporters all the best for this massive, massive Game 7 tilt coming up uh, on, on Monday. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, Ben. Aliko Carter, the host of the Locked On Warriors podcast, joins me now. We are getting set for an epic Game 7, one that uh, shapes up to be probably the most important game in the entire NBA seasons. That might sound hyperbolic, but most people acknowledge these two teams as the best two teams in the NBA. The Warriors coming off a massive Game 6 victory. Aliko, can they keep it rolling uh, in Game 7 with the... um, the, the recent injury news that's come down with uh, both Andre Iguodala and Kavon Loon listed as questionable, although Steve Kerr clarified it saying Andre is closer to doubtful and uh, he wasn't even aware that Kavon was injured. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting situation there. I think that you definitely will see uh, some desperation from the Warriors, given that this is a Game 7. You can't expect it to be like Game 5, where uh, they really didn't come to play. Uh, I think this is what they live for. They've been in Game 7s before. Uh, well, you know, they've been in Game 7s against each other before. If you recall, back in 2016, Kevin Durant fell to uh, Clay Thompson, Stephen Curry, and co. Uh, in the Western Conference Finals. And so they know what that is like. They know uh, what kind of mentality they have to bring. And um, I think they're, they're going to be steeled. They're going to be very steeled. It's not like they haven't won in Houston already in this series, of course, uh, winning back uh, in, in Game 1 there fairly comfortably um, there for, for the Warriors. Now, they do have the other side of the equation with Chris Paul being questionable. Um, 
it seems like it's leaning a little bit more towards doubtful. But without Chris Paul, the Warriors were able to get that victory pretty comfortably in Game 6, and they'd be hoping for a similar thing there. But it wasn't just all the absence of Chris Paul. They took care of the ball, only 12 turnovers in Game 6. They shot the ball very well as well with Steph and Clay obviously getting ridiculously hot, combining for 14 threes between them. Um, but Kevin Durant still can't seem to quite find his groove at this point. What's What's off with the way that Durant is playing at the moment? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting watching his game uh, develop over the course of yesterday. Uh, And I was really uh, proud of him for attacking the basket as much as he did, knowing that his shots weren't falling 6 of 17 from the field, but 10 of 14 from the free throw line, along with uh, seven rebounds. And I, you know, he just finds ways to be effective even when he's not being effective. The same goes for uh, the previous game where um, where I believe he shot very poorly but uh, was still able to get 28 points, 29 points or something like that. Uh, Kevin Durant is a scoring machine. I don't know what's going on with his game right now, only one of five from three, but can, we can't expect him to play like that every single day i think maybe he's spoiled us a little bit in that uh his scoring output has been so steady in the 26 to 35 range every single game and his scoring you know his shooting numbers have been true shooting north of 60 percent every single game that you just have to stop and say oh this guy is human and uh, just uh, chalk it up to having not the best game, and you know, thank the Lord that Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry are on the team as well. In uh, in Game Six, Jordan Bell saw more minutes than Kevon Looney off the bench, um, twenty one minutes versus nineteen. So not a large discrepancy, but we've seen Bell's playing time being increased throughout the series. Do you think that even if say Looney is ready to play, which it appears like he will be, um, do you think they would make a switch and put Bell in there? over Looney in the starting lineup or, or will, uh, that they remain there but Jordan Bell plays more minutes off the bench how can you see that that trend happening because Bell has been pretty impressive with his energy but Kerr still is uh, has got a pretty quick hook on him a lot of the time yeah he definitely does I don't think that you'll see a change just because there isn't necessarily an adjustment uh, that needs to be made uh, because they won so comfortably, like you said, in Game 6. But uh, you will see a lot more of, of Jordan Bell, and I'm sure that with Looney's injury, even if he is, um, you know, questionable or, or likely or, or, or what have you, they're going to be watching him. Uh, and so with with Jordan Bell being healthy, you're definitely going to see uh, some minutes from him. He had this incredible putback dunk, uh, in uh, game six, you know, third quarter, something like that. Uh, maybe it was the fourth. I can't exactly remember where he just skies in off of a Stephen Curry miss and puts it down. Uh, almost got rejected by the rim, but was able to get the ball right over and just really, really ignited the crowd. I thought the Oracle crowd was great as well, but Jordan Bell just finds ways to uh, make those exciting kinds of plays that Kavan just doesn't have in his wheelhouse. I mean, Kavan will block uh, a shot, but Jordan Bell will block a shot into the fifth row. Did you notice in in Game 6, or or maybe... 
Um, this is just it's me seeing this, but it, it felt like the offense switched a little bit more towards Curry over Durant. Now, Durant still took 17 shots and had 14 free throw attempts while Steph and Clay didn't get to the line at all, but it just felt like there was a, a subtle shift towards Steph organizing and, and running things a little bit more back to, you know, the heyday when this team was as overpowered as they had, as they'd been at, at any point really through, through any stage during their run. Steph was controlling things and it felt like a subtle shift towards that back in game six. If you notice that, do you think it was a deliberate thing or is it something that would just wax and wane depending on how players are playing in each particular game? I definitely think it waxes and wanes. And I also think that it kind of starts with Draymond Green, who starts so much of the action and had nine assists as well as six screen assists in this game um so he directs the ball where it's going to go a lot of the time and maybe he was looking to spring curry open because uh you know curry hasn't had as many uh good uh outputs as durant in this playoffs and durant can create his shot so much more easily uh so i think it was uh, a little bit of the waxing and waning, but also uh, both Draymond and Stephen Curry kind of determining that, you know, they were going to work together to get Curry good shots. One thing that was a, a real positive, apart from the huge win from the Warriors, was seeing uh, Patrick McCaw back in action after that you know, horrifying fall after the Vince Carter incident at the end of the regular season. He he came in, he played uh, four minutes in this game, but it was just good to see him on the court. Now, Steve Kerr said that he probably won't be part of the rotation for Game 7, but Aliko, it was just good seeing him back on the court. And if Andre Iguodala can't go and they are forced into a real sort of emergency situation, it's good to have that little bit of extra wing depth back now. Yeah, absolutely. I said this on my podcast a couple of days ago. If Patrick McCaw can come out and be any semblance of, you know, what he was during the season without Andre, that's just a huge boon to the Warriors lineup. And seeing him out there ignited the crowd as well. Uh, you know, nice that he could make his debut at home. Uh, we have intelligent fans here. They know what was going on. They know about the spinal contusion um and and they know how serious these injuries can be so we've all been really uh watching um because status just to make sure that you know he is okay it's nice to see him out there all right we're all ready for this game seven it's huge golden state houston you're going to be looking at things from a golden state perspective win or lose after the game and people should be checking out locked on warriors as you break down everything that's happening perhaps previewing an nba finals matchup as well aliko thanks for coming back on to locked on nba to talk about the golden state warriors thank you josh lastly we are joined by the host of the Locked On Cavaliers podcast, the jubilant Chris Manning, fresh off the Cavs, big, huge, massive, whatever you want to call it, whatever superlative you want to put in there, game seven victory over the Boston Celtics. And they're going back to the NBA Finals for the fourth consecutive year. LeBron James is back to the NBA Finals for his eighth consecutive trip. Chris, um, that game was ugly. The uh, Some of the play was ugly. The result, from your perspective, uh, and for Locked On Cavs fans as well, uh, far from ugly. Yeah, I mean, this was a surprising. This was a surprising result. I I did not have very big expectations for how Game Seven was going to play out. I I thought the Cavs were going to be in some trouble. I thought 
early going, the vibe of the game. Um, really, I thought favored Boston. I thought the pace of the game, every aspect of what we were watching really seemed to favor the Celtics, and the Cavs responded. They had that really, I thought, a big third quarter. They LeBron obviously was great down the stretch, and they went from getting not a lot from their role guys to getting a lot. Jeff Greenfield didn't really have to be for Kevin Love, which is sort of really remarkable, and it all just coalesced in this way that, that gets them to the four straight finals, and obviously they're going to be big underdogs when they get there, but this is a team that... It's hard to really process everything that went on with this team this year, all the drama, all the, the nonsense, and, and yet they're still going to the finals. And that's be- that's really because of LeBron James. Yeah, it, it is. There was nonsense all season. There were periods of time where they didn't look like they were even going to be a playoff team just with how poorly they were playing. Not that they weren't going to make the playoffs, but just as as badly as this team was playing. The defense was a, was a train wreck. And LeBron has, has gotten everything together. Now, people make the arguments about, oh, the Eastern Conference is weak. And I, I don't care for any of that garbage because LeBron has been able to do this year after year with whatever is put in front of him, and, and he does. And he was spectacular again on a team that in Game 7, Chris, the best player was was probably Jeff Green, apart from LeBron. Yeah, um, look, this is not a good Cavs supporting cast. Kevin Love's out, and even with him, this is not a particularly good Cavs team, right? Like, I think um, looking back at whenever this Cavs run ends, we're going to look back and, and look at this team and be like, wow, this is a really bad team LeBron was playing with. Jeff Green was the second best player, as you said, in this game for the Cavs, which in itself is frankly incredible. He was He went from starting the game one of the playoffs against Indiana to completely falling out of the, the the main part of the rotation for a little bit to being a starter in the game that mattered most. And, like, they got a lot of good minutes from JR, and, and George Hill came up in the second half. But the, the fact that Jeff freaking Green in 2018 is the second-best player on a team, or had the second-best performance on a team that is going to the finals in a Game 7, it, it's crazy. And it, it's, it, it's, you know, it speaks a lot to LeBron of of him being able to raise this group up and, and maximize them and also him just being fantastic. Now, I guess there's a lot of um, pessimism about whoever LeBron ends up facing in the, not LeBron, let's, let's say it accurately, who the Cavs end up facing in the finals, whether it is Golden State or Houston, because people seem to, th- to think that it's a, a fait accompli that the Western Conference teams are, are going to knock off the Cavs. But we've seen LeBron carry this Cavs team you know, without Kyrie and, and without uh, and without Kevin Love in past finals against the Warriors and, and make it a challenge at times. Um, yeah, they struggled a bit last season, but there's there's I, I am not at a stage where I can ever write LeBron off, not saying that I'm thinking he's going in as, as a favorite, but from a a Cavaliers perspective do you prefer going up against Golden State do you prefer going up against Houston how do you see a matchup there perhaps working best in the Cavs favor the Cavs absolutely should be watching game seven between those two teams on Monday and hoping that the Houston Rockets win um Golden State is, as I think we all know is just going to be a really bad matchup for them and I don't think Houston's a particularly good matchup for them either but if you're gonna t- if you're gonna ask the Cavs to pick between playing a Golden State Warriors team that's fully healthy and you and you have you had no answer for them last year when you were a better team, versus a Rockets team that might not have a healthy Chris Paul, you're picking that Rockets team every time. You're gonna talk yourself into that's a more beatable team every time, and I I do think that's the case. I think 100 percent. The Cavs should be hoping that somehow Houston wins Game Seven, and then um, obviously you know you don't want to win injuries anybody, but they have to. I think that they would have to. They would really benefit from Chris Paul not being at 100. percent I mean, that's just there's no way around it. I think that that would be the more winnable matchup for them. And and again, I think they're underdogs in both scenarios, but Houston would be much much preferable for them just because of 
Golden State's ceiling is just absurd. Well, we're at a situation where the NBA Finals don't start until Thursday. So we're you know, four days away from that. Kevin Love in that concussion protocol. And my, my not thought on it, but my, um, my guess would be that he will be okay for game one. So that's obviously a, a huge positive uh, for this team. And, and this Cavs team is getting, getting away with you know, subpar play from guys who are in the rotation, like Jordan Clarkson, who, who struggled um, through majority of this season. Larry Nance had a real stinker in, uh, in game seven. But you know, Chris, who is someone that you think has the ability in these matchups, knowing you know, who the two teams potentially are? Who, who's a guy that could potentially be that guy that, that steps up and gives the Cavs that extra boost they really haven't had through these first couple of rounds in the Eastern Conference? You know, it's it's not uh, it's in the non-LeBron Kevin Love category. It's a 100% George Hill. Um, you look at when George Hill is being aggressive and is involved in the game and he's playing well on both ends of the floor. The Cavs are just a qualitatively better team. Um, you look at when they were able to really get going at home against the Celtics. George Hill was a big part of that because of how aggressive he was being in the second half of of their game against in Game Seven against Boston. Hill was out out there making plays and attempting and attempting shots and getting in the rhythm of the game. The you know you had that the LeBron flick pass to him near the end of the game where he got the layup and he was aggressive and he and he took advantage of his opportunity. When he's doing that, when he's distributing, when he's playing defense. He's just he makes such a big difference on the Cavs. He's the real lone good option at point guard. As I am very out on Jordan Clarkson being useful in in any series, um, I I almost would consider not playing him regardless of who they who they face in the finals, just because what his issues are. But George Hill, thirty eight minutes in Game Seven, I I think that and with what they're going to ask of him and what they're going to need from him is about what he should be playing in the finals. It's a lot to ask of him, but he's that important, and I think it's clearly him as the guy that when he's really good, the Cavs are just a lot better for it. Last one here, Chris. Tristan Thompson was huge through these uh, last couple of rounds in the Eastern Conference, but the matchup against Houston or the matchup against Golden State, it doesn't portend all that well for his ability to not only perform at an adequate level, but to actually stay on the court. I feel like he played 35 minutes here in Game 7, and I'm finding it hard to, to rationalize in my head him seeing the court for this amount of playing time against either Golden State or against Houston, no matter who it is. We're seeing Clint Capella get minimalized in, uh, in that Western Conference Finals series. We're seeing you know, the Warriors running Kevon Looney as their starting center and playing him only 22 minutes per game. I just don't see how Thompson's going to be able to do that. Do you think that he can play a role similar to what he did in this series against Boston, or are the Cavs and Tyloo going to really have to be working on different lineups, different rotations over these next four uh, games, and maybe going you know, really off the board and starting Jeff Green at center or getting Larry Nance back in there and getting more Chetty Osman in there to play on the wings to really boost up uh, that wing rotation to to battle against these behemoths from the Western Conference. You were preaching to the choir and the, and the president of the play Jetty Osman uh, fan club <laughs> because I think he would be really useful. I think defensively at the very least and energy-wise he would provide something. But, you know, I, I think the Cavs are going to need Tristan and they're going to need Nance. They're both going to be in a position where, um, you know, Nance is certainly a little more mobile and a little more flexible. Um, he certainly just fits that profile a little bit better than Thompson, who's, who's a real bruiser. But... I think they're going to need both of those guys. They're, the Cavs are just a team weirdly built that has two centers that are good. Um, Tristan has honestly, has been just fantastic ever since he's kind of come back in, since Game 7 against Indiana. He's just been an utterly fantastic player for them. Um, I think they're going to need to find a way to make them work. You know, I don't know exactly how you do it, but I think this is a, not a particularly deep team. When you, when you look, they, they played eight guys in Game 7. They played, obviously, LeBron, Green, Thompson, Hill, Smith, Nance, 
Clarkson, Corver. Corver's the only guy that came off the bench that played more than 10 minutes. You add in uh, a healthy Kevin Love, that obviously changes the complexion of this a little bit. But the Cavs have only really played nine guys. Um, and there's just going to be, regardless of the position they play, I think there's just a big quality drop-off if you say, you know, give more minutes to Jeff Green or, or cut Nance for Hood or Austin. I think that there's issues there. So I think they have to find a way to make them work. You know, of course, you're going to – I would certainly look at playing – if you either team you're going to play, maybe going an extra wing in certain points is going to help. Um, but I think you have to find a way to make those guys work and make them them have success because without them, you're, you get into playing guys that just aren't really up for it. And, and that in itself is going to put the Cavs at a disadvantage. It's a tricky choice, but I think you have to find a way to keep Thompson and to a lesser extent keep Nance on the floor depending on who – regardless of who they play, you just have to find a way to make it work. Well, it's a wonderful achievement for Cleveland to be going back to the finals for the fourth straight year. Not only does it take a toll physically playing that amount of games every year, but mentally as well. So uh, all Cavaliers fans should be uh, rightfully proud. Something that seemed like it was, wasn't was going to be anywhere near close to happening uh, in the closing months of the regular season. If you want to hear about all of Chris's previews for the upcoming NBA finals, make sure you are checking out Locked On Cavs. Chris, thanks for coming on Locked On NBA and uh, discussing the uh, jubilant and victorious Cleveland Cavaliers. Thanks, Josh, for having me. And that's it for today. Another episode of Locked On NBA in the books. I know you guys are pumped to see how Game 7 plays out. We'll cover all of that across the rest of the week on the Locked On NBA podcast. Again, make sure you are subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or on Spotify. And if you could leave us a five-star rating and a review, it would be absolutely fantastic. My name is Josh Lloyd, once again, the host of the Monday edition of Locked On NBA and of the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. Guys, we are done. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See ya.